My name's Bongo. Huh, boy, I hate this. Welcome to Zero Credits. My name be Henry. And my name is John. And together we be Henry and John. Back again on this Talk Like a Pirate Day. Oh, is it Talk Like a Pirate Day? Yeah, it's Talk Like a Pirate Day. That Hence the whole pirate introduction. Do you think that pirates actually sounded like that? I don't think so. I think that's a popular media thing. Because I think pirates probably sounded a little something like this. <clears throat> It's me, I'm a pirate, I got a pirate, a pig, a leg, and a pig hat, Are you, like, trapped in a really small bag? I have a ship and a cannonball and a sea and a bird. Are you, like, trapped? Do you have, like, caramel in your mouth? I'm a only got one eye. Look at the sail ship bird, one eye ship. Yeah, they probably sounded a little bit like that. It's old English. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows old English is just old piratey talk. Yeah. I mean, old English gave us two things, the pirate accent and the word frap. As in frappuccino. Yeah, how do you explain the two p's with the e at the end? You can't. Uh, no bullshit, Henry. What's your favorite old English word? My favorite old English word is probably kenning, which we've already talked about. Yeah, I don't know what my favorite Old English word is. Maybe yawn. Yawn's pretty good. I I like to sometimes imagine that when people say bed, bath, and beyond, they're actually saying bed, bath, and beyond. Yeah. Like, bed, bath, and then you leave. <laughs> uh, axe as an act ask is also, uh, well, I just say that, so it might as well be one of my favorite Old English words. Is it like a neo-Old English word, and you're bringing it back into, uh, back into prominence? Yes, I am giving Chaucer Proudness. Uh, Chaucer Proudness is the name of my firstborn, and I would like you to keep his name out of your mouth. Oh, I'm sorry. Why do you sound like a uh, legendary improv legend Scott Ackerman? Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> that, that sounds exactly like a joke he would do. Uh, so... Probably so. my favorite Old English word is bedward. As in, let's go toward the bed? Yeah, toward the bed, just bedward. Bedward! Bedward ho! And you know, we we have so many opportunities to say that in our modern day lives, and we just never do. Like, if you're gonna go take a nap, you're just gonna say, I'm going bedward. <laughs> I travel bedward. I am slouching towards bedward. <laughs> Honey, where's the remote? Oh, have you tried looking bedward? Why can't we put word at the end of every word? You technically can, but we just use toward or near, you know. We've, subst we've substituted that that word su suffix with Yeah, we, just... we've really only gotten the toward, the backward, and then the uh, rarely used southern side words. There's four words. Four words, two word, backward, side words. And we kind of... Skyward. Downward. Skyward. Yeah, downward. Northward. Southward. All of the other directions. Word. You know, actually, maybe we do do that for every word. Yeah, we just don't do it with specific nouns anymore. It's just, it's directional. It, it, we don't say kitchen word or back of the house word. <laughs> it's true. And also, please do not utter any back of the house words on the podcast. Uh, back of house words are only for the back of house. And everyone knows that we record this... In a den? Yeah, we... Which front of house. We record in the den, uh, which will eventually be known as the living room. Yes, once we resurrect it. Yes, once we bring the den 
back from the dead. It will uh, become the living room. Wake me up, the den. <laughs> wake me up. Oh, you mean wake me up by the den. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, anyway. John? I'm the den, I'm the den. What? What are we doing? Uh, I think we're having a series of hilarious riffs. Yeah, I guess we are riffing with the best of them. Uh, no, not that last part. We are riffing, though. I guess we are riffing us a new one. Yeah, that one's okay. I guess we are riffing through time. Let's keep that one. Alright, well, pretend I said it again. Don't worry. Okay. Uh, so, John, crazy things are happening in the world. Uh, from what I understand, yes. Yes, Mexico was hit again by another earthquake. This time, it seemed to be more uh, weaker than the 8.2 earthquake that happened a week ago. Yeah. The 7.1 Richter scale earthquake is just as scary and just as violent, John. We've got a, uh, it was a 7.2, you said? 8.2 last week, 7.1 this week. Well, I guess the, uh, isn't the Richter scale logarithmic, so every time it goes up, it's supposed to be more intense by a factor of 10? Something like that, yes. But once you get in the 7s and 8s, kind of all bets are off. Yeah, they're unsure because they have to they have to look at more data. It's too early to tell. They're unsure if this is an aftershock of the 8.2 last week or if this is a totally separate seismological event. It is a bad time to exist in nature. Pretty much. Uh, Tropical Storm Maria, as I would have referred to it just yesterday, is now a Category 5 hurricane. Yeah, it really seems like these, uh, these hurricanes are kind of coming out from, coming out of nowhere because, you know, things are, tropical storms are chill. Yeah, a tropical depression or tropical storm is just a little bit of rain that could be compared to a bad thunderstorm. But they keep hitting like this weird express lane out in the Atlantic that just graduates them to major storm overnight. Yeah, for some reason, I, I don't know if these storms got, like, Amazon Prime or whatever, but they're being express two-day shipped to us now. Yeah, it's, they're, 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 some of these islands in the, Car- in the Caribbean, like, uh, Dominica and other islands, like, people aren't gonna be able to rebuild until after hurricane season because they're just getting hit <clears throat> one storm after another. It's like the, it's like, it's like the end of the Caribbean. And this could possibly be the longest hurricane season we've seen in a while, too. It's certainly going to be the, one of the more active ones. Uh, at the onset of the storm uh, of the season, they were predicting uh, 13 to 14 storms with five major hurricanes, and we've already seen about three major hurricanes. So they got to calm down. Yeah, we need to... We, we need the... We really need the oceans to cool off because that, that's that's the driving force of hurricanes is warm waters well i mean thank god the temperature on the planet is just cyclical and is no way influenced by human behavior so those oceans will cool off eventually i think we should drop refrigerators into the ocean i uh, worked in that indiana jones movie yeah we should drop harrison ford and a and a refrigerator into the ocean you know i think it's kind of it this is in terrible taste because people have lost their lives to these storms. But when a storm, when a storm is a tropical depression, you're like, come on, buddy, pep up. And it becomes a tropical storm. You're like, okay, you're getting there. And that's like <laughs> a, a category one. It's like, okay, maybe slow down a little bit. And that's a category five. It's like, you just took this way too far. Yeah. You, you went, you went from zero to like partying and doing cocaine way too quickly. Yeah, you went from being way too down to way too up, and you're not fun either way, Maria. Yeah, Maria. Christ. Ugh. Jesus. Hate her. Man. Now, someone raised a good point with Irma that, and I think Irma might be a good sort of representation, but it's like, of course we name these hurricanes because there's no better way, I guess, to track them. I mean, you mm-hmm. could number them. You could number them quite easily. 
But I guess it was just a little bit of fun to name these hurricanes. But why don't we keep using names that are like in the popular that are in vogue right now? Yeah, exactly. Like Maria is probably a very popular name. Uh, why don't why isn't it like Martha? I think that we should. Hurricanes, I think, are probably getting worse as time goes on because of the oceans thing. Yeah. So I think that we need to start naming them on a linear scale of threateningness. Because sure, I don't know, 50 years ago, naming something Hurricane Andrew, that's fine. Yeah. Nowadays, it's not It's not Hurricane Andrew, it's Hurricane Azathoth. <laughs> Hurricane, Hur- Hurricane Death Muncher. Not Hurricane Maria, Hurricane Malbolgia. <laughs> Hurricane Malignant Malignant Tumor. Oh no, Hurricane Malignant Tumor is no bueno. Yeah, they just they just name them after bad things, and and when when a storm is so bad they have to retire the name. That means the the word itself is retired. And then like it it's based on the category because like category three is like it's Hurricane. Costly repairs to your nephew's saxophone that you have to pay for so he can go to Juilliard. All the way to, it's Hurricane Catastrophe. Yeah, but like, Category 5 is like, give me a letter. Oh, do C. Like I did. Oh, Catastrophe? This is, uh, Hurricane Cat threw up in your mouth while you were asleep. Yeah. See that that's that's a lot worse than the cost of the the saxophone you have to pay for your nephew. Because one is a monetary cost, but one eats away at you for the rest of your life. You will always have had that cat throw up in your mouth when you were sleeping. You can't wash that away. You can't, but you can wash your mouth out, which I recommend. Uh, but wholly and utterly. You know, do you, I wonder if that would give you a phobia. Probably. Are phobias something you can just get? I've been thinking about that. You can develop phobias at any time. Uh, like, traumatic experiences can produce phobias. Because uh, we're both from the South. We both went through Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, we did. It was a hit on my birthday. Oh, no. Yeah. Congratulations. That's what the hurricane said. It's a... Congratulations, Henry. And then it blew out your candles. Storm force winds. <laughs> what? Yeah, we're really bad house guests. But uh, do you, do you have a phobia of hurricanes now? I mean, I was not afraid of storms terribly before. I had a slight fear of tornadoes. But I mean, I don't think anyone's just cool with tornadoes. Yeah, I don't think there's ever been like a fan of tornadoes. I think even the people who study them have like a weird mutual respect does that mean the tornado respects them (laughs) (laughs) it would the tornado would have to respect them because they drive toward the storm yeah i think that it's absolutely a moby dick situation they're not in love with it yeah yeah but But uh, ever since katrina i've had a very serious fear of severe weather yeah and i think that's just sort of a regional thing. I think either you become numb to it, like a lot of people do, or you become very sensitive to it, like a lot of people do. There's not really a lot of middle of the road when it comes to severe storms like that. Yeah, hopefully there aren't a lot of people who are like, Hurricane, I could take it or leave it. Yeah, I I mean, of course, the young people who haven't experienced a, a bad hurricane yet, they joke and they do hurricane parties and stuff like that, and hopefully they end up all right, but... The truth of the matter is, hurricanes will most likely wipe out the South at some point. Yeah, it's uh, it's more likely than not. And I mean, my whole thing about hurricanes was when Katrina came through, I had to run outside to help with the generator. Yeah. And while I was doing that, a gust of wind so powerful uh, came through that it picked me up only like an inch off the ground. And that and, that's... And then it immediately slammed me to the ground. I was like, well, I guess... Weather can just kill me. <laughs> and that that's especially frightening because, you know, not to give away your 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 ratio numbers, but uh you're you're like six foot nine. To be fair, I was like man, fuck, was that twelve years ago? It was two thousand five. 
Yeah, so I was like 15 or 16. Yeah, I was still fat and tall. Yeah, so I mean, you're not, you're not by any means someone who would normally be thrown around by wind. Yeah, and that's, the idea of that is crazy to me. Yeah, it's, weather is a force that cannot be withstood. Like, even buildings that are built up the code and built to all of the regulations today still get torn down by weather. It's just, it's an overwhelming force that just tears things down. I mean, if any, if there was any given year where the weather just by random happenstance or human intervention, not saying humans control the weather, that sounded weird in like a, like a conspiracy theory way, but I meant in a global warming way. Yeah, that sounds weird, like the upcoming, no doubt, smash hit movie, Geostorm. I'm sorry, what? Uh, I saw a trailer the other night while I was watching the Emmys for an upcoming movie called Geostorm, John. Oh man, those Emmys are really good. Uh, we're gonna talk about them later. Oh but, uh... shit, I love them. <laughs> but th- this Geostorm movie, the basic premise is, uh, a bunch of natural disasters were threatening the planet, so of course humans banded together and launched this weird global climate-controlling satellite thing to try to prevent them. But now somebody is controlling that system to attack the Earth. Oh, that seems like a not very targeted attack. I'm going to assassinate the president with a tornado. Well, we're talking tidal waves and firestorms and all types of crazy things, starring, of course, Gerard Butler... Oh Ed, man, what a what a talent. Ed Harris. Oh. Jim Sturgis. Okay. Andy Garcia as the president of the USA. Who is Andy Garcia? Uh it's a name that I thought I recognized. Okay. He's old. He was in The Godfather Part 3. Oh, that one. Yeah. So Geostorm uh Sounds like it's made by the same people who made, like, The Day After Tomorrow. Oh, so it's just another one of those apocalypse movies. It's exactly one of those, but it's... It it actually... It is the same director as Independence Day, Independence Day 2, Godzilla, the American version. Oh my god, it's the same director. Just to be clear, we're talking Godzilla 1998, correct? Correct, the Matthew Broderick. Yeah, so the same director who makes a bunch of pretty garbage disaster movies that Excuse- get decent stars. Excuse me, I, I I meant producer because apparently I can't read. This guy is the producer of these movies. Okay, then so basically the same thing I was saying. Yes, this is what he does apparently. He just makes like destruction-esque filled movies where famous landmarks are destroyed by... Increasing, increasingly weird plots. So, earthquake porn. Earthquake porn, if you will. Uh, that's the new subgenre that I'd like to start calling it. Yeah, but it's just funny because... I don't know, it tied in very well. I just wanted to mention it. Oh, I should go see that. We should both go see it and tell everyone how good it is. I'm not gonna see it, John. I've already... My, my movie-going quota has been hit, like, thrice over. You went to a lot of movies, brag. Yeah, I did, because I like that Alamo Draft House, John. Hey, maybe you just have to update because you live a new place. It could be. I just, I like their food, and also they have good movies. Yeah, it's a winning combination. Food and movies. You know, uh, we can talk about the Emmys, or we can talk about a different thing, and you can segue into the Emmys. Oh, let's talk about a different thing real quick. So the uh, different thing I want to talk about is just a general idea uh, that the Emmy has kind of made me start thinking about, and then we were talking about going to go see this Geostorm thing. Yeah, well, what did it make you start thinking about, John? So, something that I've been doing a little bit of research into is, uh, and it, it generally gets conflated with minimalism, but this idea that when you make a purchase, you should purchase the best version of something that you can afford, produced by a company whose principles from toe to tip you agree with all right so somebody who's like 
all of their practices and beliefs and core values line up with yours? Yeah, it's very, very extreme voting with your dollar. And it's an interesting philosophy that I don't think maybe any human being uh, actually does. I They would have to be like a really disciplined, almost monk-level person just because of all of the the weird things that, that come out with these companies. Like, unfortunately, like Chick-fil-A's weird gay camp thing. And I think that some of it comes, it has to come down to, you can't agree with all of the, all of the actions of the employees, but you have to agree with the actions of management and the mission statement. Yeah, definitely the mission statement. And I was thinking about that because I was reading about a company slash man, uh, who, okay, so it's a man who owns a company, but he's also an author and a philosopher and kind of a cool guy, but he's kind of, uh, pretentious. Well, I mean, if he is a company and he's also a person, but he is, not, uh, not, it's kind of hard not to be pretentious, right? No, when you're that. But he's, uh, his name is Brunello Cuccinelli. Okay. He is an Italian clothing magnate. All right. Who runs his company as a set of philosophies that are pretty fascinating. And he believes in this idea that if you ever spend money or consume something or integrate something into your life, you have to understand where it comes from. Which, of course, it's easy for him to espouse that philosophy of you should get the best thing you can afford when he sells $1,500 t-shirts. Yeah, that sounds like he's trying to justify a large price. But everything that he sells is of the highest quality that he can possibly manage. And everything that he makes is made to deny fast fashion. It's supposed to be things that you can wear almost every day for the rest of your life. Because he wears, like, the same two suits, and that's it. Alright. And... He runs a really cool company, and his pretension comes from the fact that he quotes the Stoics a lot, and he's a big believer in, you know, uh, classic Greek philosophy. But he runs his company in such a way that instead of hiring people and how he says treating them like slaves, he will hire young people from around the community, and he will take them to this place called Solomeo, which is in Umbria in Italy, and it was a run-down little uh, parochial town that had nothing going for it, and he went and he dumped a ton of money into it. He started bringing these people in to teach them how to sew and teach them how to embroider and teach them how to tailor, and he employed them, and he employs them at, like, twice the living wage, and everything they eat is, like, a three-course meal from local ingredients, and they only pay the equivalent of $3.80 per meal. That's awesome. This guy, I can get behind his employee culture thing. And his employees are free to live there because every room in his facility has a fireplace and space for a bed. And he lives by the philosophy that if his business ever goes under, he is immediately going to sell it and turn it into houses for all of him, all of his employees. Wow. So they're, they're not homeless if they're jobless. Yeah. And he has huge amounts of job retention and he hosts a completely tuition-free school to teach teenagers all the way to people in their 50s and 60s uh, artisanal skills like bookbinding and uh, tailoring and just general craft. But he still charges way too much money for his shirts. Yeah, see, that's that's something to, to think about, I guess, because he still has, like, a super luxury clothing brand, but he... He runs his company in such an impeccable way. It's kind of like he's a Robin Hood. You know, he's taking that money that, that people, like the people who can't afford it will probably, have, they, they don't care about the price. And he's taking that money and he's trying to make his employees' lives better while still probably turning a profit. Because he manages this really uh, illustrious luxury brand and it does really well. His His clothes are extremely famous the world over. So he, yeah, like like you say, he's kept taking money from the rich for these extremely timeless, expensive goods and then giving back to the community. He built a 240-person uh, theater in the town 
where it's free to attend. He organizes plays and he brings theater troops from all around Europe to go and do stuff. It's very cool. Yeah, he's like he's uh, he's like an old time patron of the arts. Only instead of just promoting artists, he's promoting an entire community. Yeah, and he, the his inspiration, uh, or uh, he says his inspiration comes from the fact that his father worked in a cement factory to support him when he was a child, and his father was a farmer before, and he saw the transition from his farmer his farmer his father used to have lands that he tended. And a craft, and when he became a cog in a machine, he was treated like a slave. He never made as much money, and he was never as happy. And he went into his 70s and 80s miserable. Well, I think that's a a pretty altruistic sort of inspiration. It's just, you know, if he's trying to, to promote this as a philosophy that all companies should do... It only works if your your product is super famous, you know. That the Walmart can't pull that up. Walmart could totally pull that off. But it, it but then it's like his clothes aren't for the everyday person. Which I mean, I wonder if we could exist in a world where things cost four or five times as much as they do now, but people just own less. And so you only have like three shirts. I mean, that might be a a decent world to live in because I know that I have dozens of t-shirts and I don't wear half of them. I just bought them on a whim or because I could afford them. But if every every clothing decision I made was a big uh, concerted effort to understand the company and understand that's going to be one of the few shirts that I will wear, then I would own maybe four or five shirts in total. But it's a scam, John. How so? You wear those four or five shirts. You only have four or five shirts, so you got to keep washing them. The more you wash them, the more they wear out. When they when they're worn out, you got to buy new shirts, and suddenly you're giving them fifteen thousand dollars again. But who's to say these shirts aren't going to last longer because they're made of better materials? I say the washing machine that you own is probably not going to be suited for them. So, it, and you're not going to have enough money to go to a dry cleaner because you spent a total of $60,000 on shirts. So then you're going to use your washing machine as a compromise because you got to wash the shirts. And then over time, they start fading, they get worn, they got holes in them. It's just entropy, man. It's entropy. You can't, you can't pay off entropy. Or what if we lived in a world where workers were treated kindly and fairly and you could take breaks and had time with your family... So instead of going home and putting things in the washing machine, since you only have four or five shirts, you wash them by hand, you air dry them, there's no shrinkage, there's very little chance of them wearing out. Alright, under that model of life, you have a point. It's it's a mindfulness thing, I guess, that, I, that yeah. I've been thinking about, because I know that it's very easy for me as a member of the society that we live in to just make choices because they're easy and cheap but i want to start making choices because they're hard and expensive (laughs) you want to start making better choices not based on what is convenient but what perhaps is more ethical or what more aligns with your worldview yeah exactly yeah I, i understand and that that's a noble pursuit Oh, it sounded like you were going to, like, do, like, a sweet roast after that. But! Fuck. (laughs) You'll find it'll be easier the more money you have. I I think mindfulness only comes with a certain amount of financial freedom or independence. A lot of people can't be mindful if they're just trying to provide the bare minimum of what they have. And then that goes back to the whole argument of minimalism is, in fact, classist. Because it's assuming that you can afford very few high-quality things, whereas there are plenty of people in the world who are just getting by with very few, very low-quality things. Yeah, and really a lot of our systematic problems come with come from this classist divide that has existed pretty much since we became a country. And I, I mean, capitalism spilled out of that because it keeps the classes divided. 
It keeps the people with power in power, gaining more power. And in this instance, power is money. And the more divided we are, the more we can't organize to try to overthrow them to make everyone's life better. Because we're busy just trying to scrape enough for our own families. But if it was mandated that employees be paid twice as much... Then we'll start talking. Then we'll have... There'll be mobility. There'll be the abel- uh, 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 the ability to start thinking about how our lives are structured. And there might be enough room for social change. But I think it's it, it's really directly linked to just the means you have as an individual. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the... You can really only effectively vote with your dollar if there are laws or standards in place that keep you from being systematically victimized. Yeah. If the government would actually protect the consumer instead of just encouraging the consumer to consume, then there's a chance that you can be mindful. Or, you know, you could just be mindful as an individual and not worry about society. You can totally do that. As long as you've got the means to to uh, back it up. Which is tough. It is tough. Especially when inflation rises by 5% and the average performance review raise is around 5%. So you're never actually gaining more money. Which is why you need to quit your job and job hunt. Back to quit. the old zero credits mantra. Yeah. yeah the, the old zero credits m- mantra just... Did I ever say welcome back to zero credits? I know I talked like a pirate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I will fix uh, it. I'm spacey today. Um, but yeah, you know, do the best thing for you and your career. Job, job, what is it called? Job hop. Fight for your raises. Get that salary where you can. And move on to the next thing. No loyalty to fascists. And all companies are fascists. And all loyalty to fashion. Yes. Buy your $15,000 shirt. It, also another, like, real cool thing. Oh, yeah. he, he makes his clothes baggy because he thinks it's ridiculous that if you gain or lose weight, you have to stop wearing things. That's kind of cool. Totally goes against the fashion of our time, but still pretty cool. Let's all live in bags. Let's all live in bags. That's a good... That's, I think, (laughs) in the perfect utopia where our clothes are assigned to us, we'll all be wearing bags anyway. Thank God. You know who wasn't wearing bags? Those stars and starlets and starmen. Those those tuxedoed starmen. Those tuxedoed starmen and tuxedoed starwomen. On the tuxedoed red carpet of the 69th annual Emmys Golden Awards. Golden Globes. Oh. No, dude. Emmys, dude. Oh, what's a what's an Emmy stand for? Emily Gordon, the <laughs> star, the writer, and, and, and wife of Camille Nanjani. Amazing that she has a whole awards ceremony named after her. That's it's it, that's been going on for sixty nine years, and I, I I'm just gonna go out on a limb and say she's not that old. Oh, hold on, hold on! I'm getting something nice, nice. Anyway, so yeah, the the sixty ninth primetime Emmy Awards. <laughs> nice. Why do you keep saying nice? Nice. Why do you keep saying nice? You're staring. Any, anyway, continue. Hosted by Stephen Colbert. Uh, featuring all of your favorite television stars and dramas and comedies and limited series and TV movies and way too many goddamn categories. And it just keeps going on and on. And somehow it's still shorter than the Oscars. How many, uh, how many Emmys were there before this one? 68? So this would make this one the, uh... Oh, god damn it, John. Yes, the 69th... Wow. Primetime Emmys. Oh. I would never have caught on to that. Wow. Uh... Hang loose. Hang loose? Yeah, hang loose. (laughs) Hang loose? Yeah, hang loose. Hang ten, my man. Nice. Uh... So did you happen to catch these Zimmies, John? I read a detailed synopsis. <laughs> uh, I watched them happen live. 
I and read transcripts of the monologues and the speeches. Uh, I looked at a lot of pictures, saw some well-dressed young people, some well-dressed older people. Yes. Did, did you happen to catch that there was a political, uh, a specific sort of political theme about the night? Uh, no. You didn't catch that? I think there was like a singing, dancing tribute to nihilism. Well, yeah, everything's better on TV was the theme of the the singing the song and dance number. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, you you didn't catch that Sean Spicer showed up. To... Oh shit! I totally forgot about that. Okay, can we talk about that for? Okay, here's the thing. <laughs> What's the thing, John? I would like to be legitimately mad about something real quick. Why are you mad? I'm mad because. This is the world we live in, Henry. We live in a world where you can thoroughly, completely, and justifiably lambast someone for lying to the face of the American people and and being a, a shitty, shitty guy. And then the second you have an opportunity to, like, put him in a tuxedo and be like, Haha, it's Sean Spicer. You just do it. Well, but... John, you have to understand the the circumstances of his job. He he was just doing what would keep him employed. I mean, I feel like if I was it's fine. No, I, I understand, I understand. It's like we were all making fun of him, we were all tearing him down, and now just because he decided to quit apropos of a really decent reason, um he, we're gonna clap with him and laugh with him just because he decided he agreed to, to show up for five seconds? I mean, he's still someone with bad opinions who is extremely rude and does not respect the truth whatsoever and nor his own integrity. But maybe this is part of his long road to redemption where he becomes a public figure and turns it all around. It it could be, and it, it kind of feeds a theory that has been going around for a while, um, that a lot of these pundits or conservative sort of pundits are all failed entertainers that have just found an audience that will, won't criticize them. Couldn't you say the same of all politicians? To a certain degree, yes, but a lot of the conservatives stand out, like, uh, Kel, Kel, what's her name? Kelly Ann Conway? Mm-hmm. You can you can YouTube her stand up. You can and she bombs. She's not funny. Like Spicer, uh, he was no no. Uh, Steve Bannon was a screenwriter. Like they're all they all have some ties to entertainment, and they're not doing entertainment now for some reason. And so now it's like they're using what platforms they can to remain relevant, to remain in the public eye. And so this Spicer sort of moment that happened in the Emmys kind of just confirms that he didn't say no to appearing on national television in front of everybody, despite what people would say, probably because he has a weird kind of desire to be back in front of the public again. I mean, that's a, it's a pretty fascinating idea because I guess it speaks to the quality of their writing was was such that they could only find an audience in a place that was uh, inherently irrational. Yeah, I I mean, it could be that they just happened to find people who would clap when they were talking, and those people happened to be a certain demographic that have certain questionable beliefs, but at the end of the day, it's all about entertaining and earning that paycheck without actually, I guess, putting in the hard work of the middle class. So they kind of just swallow that pill. That's uh, that that's very sad. You know, <laughs> something that might be part of that is you know your Kellyanne Conways and your Son Spicers and your Tucker Carlsons and your Mike Huckabees. If they are all at their heart entertainers, I'm not saying that they just like code switch their political beliefs. Maybe they're just right leaning people who aren't very good at being comedians or storytellers, but. I mean, since there is no faster nor more efficient poison to comedy than being deeply conservative in your heart, then what they did was they just turned to to politics and punditry 
because that's the only place they could be received. That's that's basically what the theory says is like they they gravitate toward these areas because it's it's just sort of the natural course of action. You know, they they didn't make it in the entertainment world because well, a lot of Hollywood is left. You, you can't deny that. And if they happen to be more conservative, they'll gravitate to the more conservative what they perceive as entertainers, and that just happens to be politicians and pundits. I mean, you know, it's just a it's a typical arc for your standard comedian. You know, if you want to get your start, you know, you you go to Chicago, you work with the Groundlings, do some Second City stuff, you maybe visit the Improv Olympic, you work on your tight five, you go to the Comedy Cellar, and then you you shop your act around, and then before you know it, you end up on Fox News saying that people are preening leftist LaCroix drinkers, and then all of a sudden, you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, I can imagine a scenario, like a, a maybe a satire or a farce, where somebody goes through all of that, ends up on Fox News, and they're waiting for the laugh track to kick in. <laughs> yeah, they're waiting for people to like laugh and be like, oh no... That'd be pretty yeah. good. We should we should make that series and call it Veep Two. <laughs> Veep Two. Uh, yeah. To to to. Nah, I'm not gonna rehash. Let's just talk about the night, John, and what the night is for. It's for celebrating the shows that we like, and maybe if we examine these shows that one, we'll see literally what's in the zeitgeist right now. Because after all, the zeitgeist kind of is reflected in these award shows. Which is great, because in the past Emmys, it was not. Yeah, I, and looking at the winners, you can see a particular trend, uh, starting with the, uh, the the best outstanding comedy series. It went to Veep. Veep! Um, best outstanding drama series, and went to The Handmaiden's Tale. See? Strong political message and a well-made show. Best Outstanding Variety Talk Series went to Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. See? It's good. And also, he's very outspoken about the current regime. regime, The current administration. (laughs) Neat. Neat use of the word regime. Accidental use of the word regime. Uh, Best Outstanding Variety Sketch Series went to Saturday Night Live. Ah, Sean Spicer. Gotta love it. Alec Baldwin, Sean Spicer, Melissa McCarthy, uh, Hillary the, during the election, Larry David as Bernie Sanders, just to name a few off at the top of my head, sketches that they've done in the past few months. Yeah, Kate McKinnon was Hillary Clinton, don't forget. Uh, skipping the next few categories because they don't prove my point. Of course, confirmation <laughs> bias. <laughs> well, no, I mean, Outstanding Limited Series went to Big Little Lies, but... There wasn't really a lot of political things up for nomination and Big Little Lies. I mean, it's about domestic abuse is what I gathered. Uh, so it, it actually won quite a few awards at the Emmys. So uh, me and uh, Jamie are going to, we're probably going to start watching it soon. Yeah, check it out. Yeah. Uh, outstanding television movie went to Black Mirror for San Junipero. I, 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 I haven't seen the latest season of Black Mirror. Neither have I. Yeah. An outstanding reality competition program went to The Voice. Okay. Sure. I didn't didn't even know they had... I didn't even know they had... Why? Anyway. Alright, so, moving on. Best lead actor in a comedy series. I was really surprised and really proud of Donald Glover for, for his Atlanta. His Atlanta show. Donald Glover is great and deserved the hell out of that Emmy. Uh, he went up against really great people. Uh, you know, Jeffrey Tambor from Transparent. William H. Macy from something called Shameless. Zach Galifianakis from Baskets, where the dude just wants to be a clown. I've heard it's about clowns. I've heard Baskets is very good. I need to watch it. Aziz Ansari for Master of None. Oh, what a what uh, a slugfest between. Oh man, could have been. I know, man. It Master been, of None's real good. Atlanta's real good too. It, it yeah. I, I, have you watched Atlanta? I've watched the first half of the season. I need to keep. 
I need to watch it. You we need you need to keep watching it, but I need to watch it. But yeah, it's it's very good. Yeah. All right. Uh, so moving on to outstanding lead actress in a comedy series, Julia Louise Dreyfus as Veep. Selena Meyer on Veep. Veep. You starting to see the trend? I need to watch Veep. Veep is really good, and it, it, in no way does it actually like critique on current politics, which is why I like it. Um, but it, it's just it's really good. I, I don't know more to say. She Julie Louise Dreyfus makes the show, and her ensemble cast of supporters from like Tony Hale and Matt Walsh—they're all just really funny and really great at their jobs. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Uh, at, so moving on to. Outstanding lead actor in drama series. You got the one of the guys from This Is Us. Oh, um, Milo Viglamiglia. No. Who? What? Isn't he in This Is Us? Milo Ventimiglia? He didn't win. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. He was nominated, but he did not win. The other guy from This Is Us won. Eh, it's still a win for This Is Us, a show yes. I've never seen. All I heard is it makes you cry, and I'm not going to watch that. I heard This Is Us described as an uncomfortable wet hug. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That does not sound appetizing. An appetizingly wet hug. Yeah. Outstanding lead actress in a drama series with Elizabeth Moss for The Handmaiden's Tale. Elizabeth Moss, whoop whoop. Whoop whoop. Which, uh, I'm halfway through this, uh, the season right now, and, uh, it's really good. How close is it to the book? I have not read the book. I've only read, uh, Orcs and Creeks and, uh, the sequel to that by Atwood. But you love Maggie Atwizzle. I do, but I haven't read that book. I need to go and read it. Yeah, and then read The Blind Assassin, and then read Angel Catbird. <laughs> yeah, all, all of her books. Uh, outstanding lead actor in a limited series or movie went to Riz Ahmed. Oh, is that for, for the night of? For the night of. Fuck yeah, the night of is such a good show. That was another really proud moment, and also kind of highlights some injustice. Go yeah. figure. Injustice I, in the justice system. Weird. Weird how that's, you know, sort of uh, coming out right now. Uh, outstanding lead actress in a limited series or movie went to Nicole Kidman for Big Little Lies. Okay. It, it did good. It's, it, you're gonna hear that name a few more times. Nicole Kidman, fantastic actress, don't wanna, I don't want to shit on her accomplishments, but it's not really part of the narrative. No, it's not, which I wanted to skip it, but you called me out and you were right to do so. Okay, skip things that don't fit the narrative. Alright, outstanding supporting actor in a comedy series, Alec Baldwin as President Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live. Okay, I think that might fit the narrative. Uh, when he stepped up to, to accept his award, he began his speech with the words, uh, President Trump, finally, here is your Emmy. Nice. Cause you know the, you know the history. Donald Trump has been nominated, I think, Three times for an Emmy, and he's never won. Oh, that must suck for him. Yeah, and and part of Stephen Colbert's opening monologue was like, guy, you, you know, the Academy, why didn't you just give him an Emmy? He might have stopped. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. All right, outstanding supporting actors in the comedy series went to Kate McKinnon as various characters on Saturday Night Live. Kate McKinnon, whoop whoop. Whoop whoop, she's, you know... Really, she deserves it. Very outstanding actress. She is um, a much derided, hilarious person. Yeah. This one surprised me, and I, I, it might actually fit into the narrative, so I'm going to say it. The outstanding supporting actor in a drama series, John Lithgow as Winston Churchill on The Crown. I don't even know anything about The Crown, but I'm going to say it fits the narrative. John Lithgow. I'm going to say it fits the narrative, at least my narrative, which I re- will reveal to you after you reveal the winners. John Lithgow. You, you know who John Lithgow is, right? Yeah, of course I fucking know who John Lithgow is. He's great. He was on Third Rock from the Sun. He was on Dexter. He's a good, good man. Very famous comedic actor is Winston Churchill? Yeah. 
That's crazy! I've heard The Crown is kind of a melodrama, but is also fantastic, so maybe I'll check it out. Maybe check it out. Uh, uh, Outstanding supporting actress in a drama series is Anne Dowd as Aunt Lydia on The Handmaiden's Tale. Sure. And uh, if I've been saying Handmaiden's Tale this entire time, it's The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, The Handmaid's Tale and... Oh, gosh. But do yourself a favor, everyone listening to this, including you, John, watch Ann Dowd's acceptance speech for the sweetest and most earnest acceptance speech ever given at an award show. I will watch the hell out of it. It's, it's not, it doesn't fit the narrative. It's not politicized in any, in, in any way, shape, or form. It's just, there's something so honest about what she says, or how, how she says it, really, like it. It, you, it looks like you're. We're listening to someone who was just struck by lightning. I'm. I'm very excited. All right, skipping, skipping. Big Little Lies. Two more. Two more victories for them. Um, outstanding director for a comedy series went to Donald Glover, which is awesome. Yes, very cool. Donald Glover. Whoop whoop. Uh, outstanding director for a drama series, The Handmaid's Tale. Yay! Outstanding directing for a variety series, Saturday Night Live. Okay, yeah. Alright. Outstanding writing for a drama series, The Handmaiden's Tale. Okay. Outstanding writing for a variety series, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Okay. That's all the ones that fit the narrative. Okay. Uh, one... There is one that fits the narrative. What? Isn't there one that we're missing for, uh, Master of None? Uh, yeah, for writing. Outstanding writing for a comedy series, but it was a Thanksgiving episode. Yeah, the Thanksgiving episode that was, like, that was that was written by a queer black lady. Yeah, but that doesn't fit the narrative. Okay, we have different narratives. What's your narrative, John? What's your narrative? My narrative is that, uh, the people who decided, who voted, who decided who won the best series, all sort of leaned on things that were very political, very outspoken, very critical of the current administration, or could per- be perceived to be critical. Because I don't think Veep is actually... It doesn't actually say anything about the current administration. It's kind of its own narrative. But it kind of falls into this weird thing where if, it, if in a category a political thing or something else could win, the political thing won. That is... That is fair. My narrative was totally different. Yeah, you're probably going for some bit. No, I just thought it was one for, uh, like, appreciation and representation. Where oh, yeah. everyone, most of the people who won are, you know, the real standouts are the people who had not won Emmys before, uh, are relatively early in their career, or just put in huge amounts of work and are either Jerry looked over at award ceremonies or are minorities who have been generally overlooked uh, in the Emmys in the past. And I thought that's what was going on. I thought that was the narrative. Yeah, I, th- there was, that was like a another theme of the night for people who aren't jaded and cynical like I am. People who are looking for the positives would probably gravitate toward that narrative. And, and it's, it's totally validated. It's totally there. I just have a question for you, John. Yes. Where are the Asians? Oh, fuck. Yep. Hey, you want to get with me on a hashtag real quick? What's the hashtag? Hashtag Emmys, where are the Asians? <laughs> Emmys, where are the Asians? No, it, it, yes. The amount of representation and the amount of people who actually won, outstanding. But the Emmys, I think, have been okay with that. It's really the Oscars that had the problem with it, right? Uh, I mean, the Emmys have been kind of white in the past. They don't have the same problem the Oscars do, but... How come there's no late-night host? Like, there's Samantha B, but all of our late-night hosts are white men. Uh, it's because, uh, shit, what was the name from the guy, name of the guy from The Daily Show who got his own show that got canceled? Oh, oh, Larry Whitmore. Yeah, that's because Larry Whitmore's not on there anymore. You're right. I guess technically Trevor Noah counts as a late night show. I was thinking more primetime. Oh boy, I thought you were going to go a different place with that technically. Henry, no. What? I thought you were going to say technically he counts as a minority. I'm like, what? 
Come on. Uh, uh, no, uh, <laughs> I was saying technically, like, because, I guess basic, I, I count, come out, oh, I counted Samantha B because I, I'm happy that there's a woman late night talk show person, mm-hmm. uh, but she's technically basic cable too. Yeah, we need to diversify our late night hosts. I mean, get rid of Jimmy Fallon. That's easy. Get it, 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 he's his show wasn't even nominated for anything. Eighty six Kimmel, get Kimmel right out. Kimmel's okay. Yeah, he's know. just okay. Not good enough to make the cut. I like Stephen Colbert as a person, and I liked the Colbert show. I'm not a fan of his late night show. Yeah, um, I'm not a huge fan of it because basically what he seemed to do was be very softball with everything, and now it seems like he's trying too hard, but I like him as a person, he's very funny. Yeah, I mean, he started out, it seemed like when he started out he was trying to spread out to the widest demographic possible by being very, very non-committal to things, and then he just kind of turned the dial completely in another direction, and he, he might be trying, like you said, a, a little too hard to, to overcompensate. It, it's just something's off about that show. I miss early David Letterman. Yes, early David Letterman. Uh, you know, late night is at its best when you think that it might be shut off at any, at any moment. <laughs> late night is great. Uh, I... Recently was going through an archive of a bunch of John Cleese interviews because I like hearing him talk. And, uh, he showed us, he shows up on Letterman and Letterman is throwing toast. Like he's toasting bread and throwing toast at his audience. And John Cleese is just like, well, I'll have a piece of toast. It's just like, <laughs> it's crazy. It's off the wall. It's everything that right now late night isn't. Uh, David Letterman, one of the greatest comedy geniuses to ever live. Yeah, he took the late night concept and just deconstructed it. It was like watching postmodern late night talk show, and then toward the end of his career, he just kind of gave up. Yeah, uh, it, at some point he he relaxed into kind of a malaise. But if you watch early to mid David Letterman, there is I'm not sure there's ever. Since or before been anyone on television who so thoroughly understands the downfalls of popular media? Yeah, he was making fun of TV to TV's face. And people, I think his, like, the people behind it, the producers, were like, oh, he's so funny because it's random. And it's like, no, it's not random. He's doing a bad job on purpose or just doing crazy things on purpose just to see if you'll keep him on. And and I think by the end of his career, he was sad that no one ever pulled him off. Yeah, I mean, he, he gave a ton of time to bands and individuals that he thought was important. He did a ton of work to further art in a way that no other late night host has done. Like, he would specifically use his platform to find things that he liked and him and his uh, group of friends thought was significant, and he would bring it to greater attention. And, and I think the only the only host who's doing something like that today is John Oliver, who's using his platform to literally educate his viewers about things like big pharma and, and things that we hear about, but maybe things we don't actually understand. There was a late-night talk show host that was almost as good as David Letterman, though. Who was it? Craig Ferguson. Oh, my God, Craig Ferguson. How could I forget him? Yes. I loved Craig Ferguson's interviews because they would never talk about whatever they were supposed to be plugging. They would just have a conversation. Yeah, Craig Ferguson's interviews were always completely unprompted, unscripted conversations between generally two pretty charismatic people who have a lot of interests. And it was so great because the stars really got to be themselves. Like, if you see uh, early interviews of Karen Gillian when she was first starting Doctor Who, she's just like a nervous Scottish girl being in America for the first time to do the show. <laughs> and they just they just talk about Scotland. Yeah, they, they don't... They're not like, oh, uh, I understand that you uh, you brought a clip or you brought a plug. It's like, let's just talk. Let's sit down and talk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Everyone, big time recommendation to the Zero Credits audience. 
Go watch some Craig Ferguson interviews. Go watch some old David Lerman. Remember your roots. <laughs> and remember that the TV of today wasn't always as safe as it was. It, 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 it seems like you watch Kimmel or you watch Colbert and you're just seeing cookie cutter stuff. Oh, it's edgy because they're making fun of the president or whatever. But it's at this point, it feels like virtue signaling where it's like, of course, they're going to make fun of the president. Everyone's making fun of the president. Yeah, not, this, at this point, you need to get weird with it. Yeah, at this point, you got, you know, I, I don't know what you do because I haven't really thought about it, but you, you just you try to deconstruct whatever's happening. Which is tough, being a deconstructionalist. Ask Derrida. Yeah, the person who no one understands. Except me. Do you understand Derrida? I have a degree in him. Oh, okay. Gotcha. I forgot he was a finance pr- philosopher. Uh, ask me what his first name is. What's his first name, John? Francois. Fan, was it? <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe it I was Jacques. It, I think it's Jeremy Piven. Oh, Jeremy Piven Derrida? Yeah, Jeremy Piven Der- Derrida. Perfect. Uh, Man. So yeah, I, I just, I feel like the Emmys can be a certain sort of mirror to the current cultural climate of our time and right now it seems to be very political in nature yeah and uh and it's gotta be and a lot of really good people done got appreciated and at the same time you're you're right your your narrative is also like we gotta look for the silver lining because the political narrative it isn't positive this is all people retaliating against something they disagree with but you picking up on that other theme of inclusion and find like young people being recognized for their hard work. That's the silver lining that we, we probably should focus on more. And I was just too caught up with the politicalness of everything that I didn't see it. Hey, the theme was appreciation. You're right. Wait, today's theme? Yeah, of the podcast and of the Emmys. <laughs> I, that, that's, that, I think that's the takeaway is be appreciative. Look for, don't look at what everyone is, is being loud about. Look for the quiet thing, the, the, the secondary narrative or the underlying message that might be more positive and hold on to that. And let's, let's hold up people like, uh, Donald Glover, Aziz Ansari. Uh, I'm gonna say her name wrong. What's her name? It's something like Waith? Go for it. Lena Waith? Sounds good to me. Yeah, Lena Waith, who was encouraged by Aziz to write that episode, co-write that episode with him, and like he insisted on it. So it's like, we should be appreciative, and we should take more risks. We should put ourselves out there, be vulnerable, let's not hide behind the easy joke Let's look for the deeper truth. Yeah, we should look for the deeper truth in, in all things, in the things we purchase, in our $15,000 shirts. We, and all the other things we talked about. Here's a problem, Henry, and I don't know how to solve this, but how the hell are you going to appreciate an earthquake in Mexico? Uh, You do what... I forget who said this, but you look at the first responders, you look at the people who are rushing in to help, don't focus on the destruction. Focus on the people who are committing everything to rebuilding. Oh, look for the helpers. Yeah, yeah. Who said that? That's very famous. I have no idea. Me either. Oh, man. It just seems like it's it's trouted about so much these days just because a lot of things keep happening. It was Mr. fucking Rogers. Mr. Rogers. How could I forget that? Yeah, Mr. Rogers. It was his mom, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So... And in, in, in the wake of all of these seemingly disastrous events and seemingly bleak and dark things, look for the people who are trying to help. Man, actually, we're not going to walk this back, but kind of a perfect theme for this episode is amidst pessimism, look for the good things. Yeah, that's a that's a probably a, a, a lot. That's probably a better theme overall. Hey, let's just say appreciation can mean a lot of things. It can. Anything can mean anything if you think about it. And you know where a good place to think about it is? Is it on Twitter? 
Uh, I, I mean, there's not a lot of thinking that goes on on Twitter. Uh, I thought you were going to segue into social media plugs. I'm sorry. No, it was a bad segue. You can think about things in your brain, and then when a perfect thought baby comes out, you can engage us on social media. Like and subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a, a rating and a, and a review with your words. Yeah, and let your friends know about it. And on Twitter, you can find us at ZCPCWHJ, which stands for... Zooby-Doo! That's right, it stands for Zooby-Doo! And you can send us an email at gmail... Fuck! You can send us... <laughs> no, you messed up! You can send us an email at zero credits as a podcast at gmail.com Send us a message, send us a massage, but don't send us a lozenge. Oh, never send us a lozenge. And we play video games sometimes on twitch.tv slash zero credits. And if you look for zero credits podcast on Facebook, you'll find us. Yep. And maybe we'll have a real website soon. Who knows? I don't. But look forward to that. And don't forget, things may look good now, but they're going to get a whole lot scarier come October. Hey, you know what they say about October? What do they say about October? Bye for now. Bye until October. We're going to be back next week, though. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. (laughs) Biggest sport. Biggest sport. Biggest sport.